Okay, well, it's Phil Ryan again, yes, here at the Story Hive podcast saying hello again. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, this is actually episode 16. I don't normally always say the kind of episode numbers because they're kind of written on it. And hopefully by now, if you've got into it, it doesn't really matter as long as there's some good stories to entertain you. And I promise you today, there really is. So we're going to kick off and it's from the September in Rome collection on the Story Hive. And it's called Signor Giovanni. Happy listening. Things had changed. Rome had changed. The restaurant still thrived. But it wasn't the same. Gone was the elegance, the style, and he adjusted his perfect tie. People came out in tracksuits, tracksuits for God's sake, for dinner. Not in his restaurant. And he looked at the trattoria opposite. People were calmly sitting in sweatshirts, jeans and training shoes, and they weren't even tourists. He picked up a piece of loose paper that had drifted into the doorway. Leaflets from that burger bar on the corner. Burgers. It wasn't like the old days. And he looked at the restaurant menu in its lit box on the wall. Fine dining, it said. But people seemed to be less interested. Happily, his clientele were very loyal. And his contacts at the better hotels ensured a healthy stream of customers. Business people mainly, his prices were high, but so was the quality of the food. And stepping back inside, he nodded to Luigi. Faithful Luigi, the man had been with him 30 years now, a consummate professional, head waiter, a good man with three beautiful children, and a stylish man. His suit was precisely cut, his shirt was fresh and ironed, to perfection. The Ristorante di Roma was an institution, even after all these years. And although the rest of the street had very much fallen away in his opinion, well, they lasted. The Trattoria Verdi had closed last year, and to his horror, the two small cafes on either side had become fast food restaurants. Good food costs money. But clearly, people weren't as interested in good food anymore as he'd hoped they would be. And that was being reflected in the street. He'd even heard a rumour that Alberti's was to close. He didn't like the man, but at least he ran a respectable place. (sighs) He sighed. Outside, the September rain started to fall. Typical weather, he thought. They had 60 covers that evening, half full, But it was Monday, and looking round the large room, he noted with pleasure the snowy white tablecloths and sparkling silverware. They had actually redecorated just two years earlier, and it was still holding up beautifully. The look was both elegant and sumptuous, all at the same time. It looked just like his late father's restaurant had always looked. He'd taken it on, when he was just 25, Papa's stroke forcing an early decision. And now, here he was some 35 years later. Papa would be proud, he thought. Many of Rome's elite still found their way to the wood-panelled and stylish marble interior, the Ristorante di Roma.
the Prime Minister himself, a regular patron. Sine Giovanni made it his business to know about everyone. Good intelligence was Papa's expression. People like to know you know who they are and what they are doing. As Papa said, you are not their friend, but you are friendly. And he'd followed that good advice. He knew all about his customers, and though many didn't know it, it was just part of the service. Luigi coughed discreetly and moved past him to open the door. Table 13 had arrived. Every Monday night, without fail, the same couple for 30 years. The Conte and Contessa, both now in their 80s, but beautifully dressed. Sina Giovanni half bowed as they had entered, and the Contessa had acknowledged him with a flick of her eyes. And following Luigi, they were led to their table. They were royalty. You could tell a mile away. The Contessa's jewellery, expensive but discreet, and the Conte's evening suit, perfectly tailored. By some unspoken agreement, their table was always kept for them. It was never booked out to anyone else. Monday, they always arrived in a dark blue Rolls Royce, a driver in a uniform opening the door for them, eight o'clock on the dot. They were like the seasons, fixed. More patrons arrived, and in no time at all, the restaurant was full of that low murmur, a conversation found only in such grand places. No raucous laughter, no clattering of cutlery. Everything was in its place, and all was well with the world. And Signor Giovanni was happy, for things were as they should be. He glanced out the window from the reception desk. In here was elegance, fine dining. Out there, more ugliness every day and burgers. He missed the old days. The music, the dress, the tuxedos. Women were wives, men were men, and everyone seemed to have a sense of place. He and Francesca had never been blessed with children but they'd had a good life just the same. Their marriage was a good one. He'd strayed, of course he had. But they'd carried on, and things had been fine, for everything was in its place, as it should be. A minute later, Luigi appeared at his side, and he pointed with his chin, a puzzled expression. A huge black limousine had drawn up outside, it must have been 30 feet long. And immediately, four men in dark glasses came from somewhere and stood by the now-opening car door. Luigi whispered, Table 25. Table 25 was a large booth table. Surrounded by high velvet sides, it sat 12. In its time... It had held some of the restaurant's most important customers. It was at the back of the room to one side, very discreetly hidden. And, it had to be said, it was the most profitable table in the place. Those who sat in its red theatrical enclosure were of money. And Signor Giovanni 
looked at the now emerging limousine passenger. Mother of God! It was a girl, but a half-naked girl. Her clothes were those of some street prostitute, and he gasped out loud audibly. Luigi gripped his arm. Patron, it is Lucy Langelli. She is a famous pop person. But before he could continue, one of the waiters had opened the door, and the girl swept in. She was around twenty, her skin glowing with youth, and she was wearing sunglasses, and her dress was so revealing her body seemed to bulge from its tiny confines. Sina Giovanni stood horrified as she and some more similarly clad girls led themselves to table 25. Oh, uh, at least they will be hidden, he thought to himself, and raising his hand, he composed himself and directed the staff to attend to them. He tried not to stare, but it was impossible. Others were, he just knew it. Everyone else was dressed in a manner perfectly suited to the restaurant. But the girl and her friends, they were like common street girls. He felt his old shoulder wound ache, and Luigi padded back across the floor, his face a mask of calm. Without a word, he held out his leather order pad. Senior Giovanni gasped. The girl had immediately ordered six bottles of crew, Clos de Mesnil, 1995, and he felt his heart pick up a pace. Each bottle was 4,000 euros. Their sommelier, Branco, had purchased two cases at auction. It was stored for royalty and dignities and bankers. Luigi raised an eyebrow. They pre-ordered it, not ten minutes before they arrived. We thought it was a crank call, Patron, but... Then a waiter appeared and held out his order pad. Both men stared in astonishment. Now she'd ordered zucchini flowers stuffed with prawns and a yoghurt sauce for twelve people. It was as if she was only choosing the most expensive things on the menu. Well, so be it, thought Sina Giovanni. If that little tart wants to eat in this place, he'd take her for as much money as he could. She clearly didn't care about etiquette, judging by her dress. And now, going into his familiar routine, he steadily worked his way around the restaurant, greeting his diners. A handshake here, a nod there. Of course, he ignored those who were busy in conversation, or those he judged were locked in romance or business. He knew his job. Of course, he never spoke to the Conte or Contessa unless directly addressed. And so it was, the evening carried on, and to his relief, everything was as normal. Occasionally, he would glance to the girls' table. The noise level was appropriate, and judging by their order, the bill would be one of the highest ever. He was utterly bemused. Luigi appeared next to him. Uh, they've asked for you to have a drink with them, Petra? His shoulder positively twinged. A drink? With these girls? He took a deep breath, 
and pausing only to tug at his shirt cuffs, he set his face in a smile and went across to greet them. The girl looked up as he approached. Her breasts were virtually falling out of her top and her face suddenly seemed to light up. Signor Giovanni gravely inclined his head. Signora, he murmured. And he took her outstretched hand and kissed it. The girl looked at him adoringly and then addressed her friends. This is the best restaurant in all of Italy. My grandmother took me here as a treat when I was a little girl. And the other girls sighed. Signor Giovanni stood, ramrod straight now, uncertain as to what to say, but the girl carried on. And then, ten years ago, when the Banco Gennaro collapsed, my darling grandmother lost all her money. The girls all looked at her, wrapped with sadness and attention. She used to eat here every Sunday, and the girl pointed. Her table was that, that little one by the window. She used to love the flower display outside. Senior Giovanni sat down. From way across the floor by the reception desk, Luigi stared. The boss had sat down. The boss had never sat at a guest table, ever. He'd make some excuse about he would only be there for a second or he'd lean in such a way that he appeared to be at the guest table. But to sit? Never. The girl dabbed at her throat with a napkin. She continued. But now with her money gone, she had to cut back. and She sold her little house and moved into a much smaller apartment. But then, one day, she decided to treat herself to lunch here at her favourite restaurant, just a reminder of the happy memories and better times. Nearby, a glass shattered noisily, and a waiter calmly moved across with a brush and pan as a colleague swiftly reset the table and everything was cleared. And Luigi was fascinated. The boss hadn't moved. Usually he'd be the first one there. But today, nothing. The girl reached out her hand and placed it on top of Signor Giovanni's, her skin twinkling slightly in the candlelight, some kind of body makeup, bronzed and smoothed to the touch. And she looked positively beautiful. She stared at the girls. And do you know, she sat at her usual table and ordered all of her favourite things. One of the other girls sat back, her tiny outfit revealing her thighs and much of her underwear, and across the room a waiter who was clearing the water glasses had to stop himself from dropping his tray. Luigi stared. The boss had not moved. And then the girl continued. And when it came time to pay her bill, this beautiful gentleman. He said he'd heard of her misfortune and there would be no bill and she was welcome any time. And tears began to roll down her face and she swallowed and tried to compose herself. She came here for a year 
and there was never a bill, not once. And then her health wasn't much better, and she decided to move to Girona. Senior Giovanni felt his face flush. Luciana. God in heaven, this was her granddaughter. Yes, Luciana. The eyes, the mouth. He could see the similarity. The girl wiped at her eyes. In her will, she left me a letter, and that's when I found about what you'd done for her. She gazed adoringly into his face. You're the kindest and sweetest man I've ever met. You made us so happy. And suddenly she threw her arms around his neck and pulled him into a tight embrace. And the other girls cooed appreciatively and he found himself being patted and kissed on all sides. But all he could think about was lying in Luciana's arms in a tiny apartment, weak after week, month after month, their elderly bodies wet with the sweat of their regular lovemaking, her face calm but yet so serious, and as she used to say, one good turn deserves another. Well, I hope you like that one. I mean, as I always say, love doesn't really recognise age, and we never, ever really grow up. We're still young and fun and wanting all the things that we want from life. And that's exactly what Senior Giovanni got, I hope. Anyway, uh, back to my job. It's the second story. And this one's from the Overheard Files. Now, these, again, are true stories. I used to write for a magazine and I started this thing where I was listening to people in cafes and jotting their conversation down. What a nosy person I was. What a snooper. I wasn't a stalker. It was just fun because some of the stories were just crazy. And when you hear it, remember, I can't make this stuff up. I'm good, but I'm really not that good. Anyway, enjoy. To get straight into it, here's my single line, overheard, telephone snatch of a conversation from a very uber-trendy character. There's an upstairs seating area at the British Library, and it seems like Apple Macland. Everywhere you were, there are various skinny-jeaned, skinny guys in baggy cardigans with those big 50s glasses and silver MacBooks. And this particular guy was lounging in a chair when he suddenly turned and looked at his phone and said, Yeah, I get the project, Simeon. It's... Just as an app, is there a market for finding the nearest depressed-looking emo girl? Well, personally, I think the jury's still out on that one. But anyway, on to the first of the three proper overheards. I was waiting in the reception room in an office in Camden Town, and it was hosting a business networking event I was the guest speaker at. And standing just behind me, there were two guys in suits. Now, I've no idea why they initially caught my ear, but I scribbled down this. First suit. It's the recession, Dave. Pure and simple. I mean, the punters are not out there waving cash, are they? Second suit. Yeah, yeah, you're right, but I do think there's a lot of rubbish being talked about no one having any money. First suit. You may be right. But I tell you this, the market is not out there for bouncy castles. Trust me, it's flat. And he actually said that without laughing. Second suit. 
Yeah, I hear. But surely your company just needs to diversify. He was clearly thinking about this. Couldn't you just offer them like to grown-ups, adults, you know, clubs and stuff? I bet everyone would love to have a go. I mean, I know I would. Every time I see kids on a bouncy castles, I'm thinking, I wish I could have a go. First suit. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we did try that. But your problem, it's the insurance angle. It's a killer. Look, we did an event three months back and some woman fell face first into this fat guy's lap. Now, apparently then he clamped his legs together and he trapped her on his crutch and she had to kick and bite just to get him to let go. Well, to be honest, they were both completely pissed, but it's caused an absolute stink at the company who hired us. They actually, act, well, they said we acted irresponsibly. I mean, we weren't the ones giving out oxygen and blooming vodka shots, were we? You know, it's an advertising agency bunch, you know the types. Second guy. Well, hmm, that's... Uh, that's going to be a bit of a tricky one to get out of, I would have said. So it is getting legal. First suit. Yeah, the woman and the fat guy having a go at us saying we should have put signs up. Signs up? Blah, my arse. Saying what? Don't get pissed on the bouncy castle. Second suit. Oh, God, that is tricky. Well, me, I think I'm just going to stick to renting out elephants, mate. You know what you're getting when you rent an elephant out? Simple. In and out. Bag of grub. Couple of bowels of straw, Bob's your uncle, job done. I mean, wow. I mean, I would have really liked to hear what they were going to get up to next, but I got called to make a speech. But it's the stuff you hear. Elephant rental? I think I'm going to call them next week. Anyway, my next brief overheard phone conversation line, I got at a training course I was attending in Romford. I was sitting in the foyer of a very nice hotel and I was sat at a side table having some tea and I noticed a middle-aged lady in a really spangly outfit and it was 10 o'clock in the morning. Anyway, as I read my paper, she suddenly said in a really loud stage whisper into her phone, Georgie Duck, I won't tell you again. Sex is not a weapon. Okay, anyway. Here we go with the next overheard. I was at an art gallery launch. Yes, I know I go to these sort of places. And this one was quite an upmarket affair. So I'm loitering by a buffet and I'm admiring some huge black and white cityscapes on a wall when I heard this. Elegant woman in black. It's not as if she's a real Buddhist anyway. She had sex with a plumber for God's sake. Elegant woman in silver. Really? Ooh, well, I heard about it, but I'm not sure that's bad for a Buddhist, is it? Elegant woman in black. <gasps> oh, God, yes, darling. It's a terrible thing for a Buddhist. Her energy in the universe gets diminished and she won't be able to reach any kind of decent peace in her meditations. I mean, technically, it's worthless after that. Elegant woman in silver. Hmm. Did she get her sink fixed? Elegant woman in black laughed. Oh, yes, and the bidet, plus a few other bits I heard. They both laughed dryly. Elegant woman in silver. But 
To be fair, I hear her marriage is in trouble. It's as plain as the nose on your face, darling. Have, have, you, met, have you met him, though, her husband? It seems quite a sweetie to me. Banking or something? Elegant woman in black. You know, uh, now don't laugh, don't laugh. I almost married him before I met Antonio. Elegant woman in silver. Oh, you sly thing. You never told me about that. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We went out, we dated, had a dalliance. But the problem was he had a terrible body hair problem. and I just couldn't stand it. Elegant woman in silver. Ugh, I just couldn't deal with that sort of thing. Poor lamb, though. I mean, it's probably, is it, what, cultural? It must be very difficult for him. Anyway, couldn't he have some sort of laser thingy? I mean, he's got the resources, certainly. Elegant woman in black. Well, I did mention it once, but he seemed rather oblivious. To be honest, darling, it was like fucking a rug. At that point, I was collared by one of the organisers and I didn't hear what happened next. Although, I'm not really sure I wanted to. But I'm glad the plumbing issue worked out. My next brief overheard phone conversation line I got, unsurprisingly, in Waitrose at the back of Bond Street where I was waiting for a friend. I was loitering by the bakery section when I heard a woman behind me yell into her phone in a very OKR voice. There is no way I'm cooking fish, Simon. It just stinks the house out. Plus it upsets the dog. We're having pasta, and if your mother doesn't like it, then the old hag can go swivel. Obviously a very close and harmonious family there. Anyway, this is the final overheard. I was at a pan-Asiatic restaurant in Soho, and it was quite a noisy place, so... To be honest, I had absolutely no problem overhearing the shouted conversation that just started on my left. There were three young women clearly celebrating one of the number's forthcoming marriage. The clue being they all had pink cowboy hats on, giveaway, and plus one girl had a silver sash on reading wife-to-be. Girl one. But the office hasn't changed at all, so that's lucky, considering. I mean, I thought we'd all lose our jobs. Girl two, frankly, Sue, I was shitting myself. I just bought that new golf and the payments aren't great. And I can tell you Dominic's not getting a payment, you know, his kind of bonus until three months time. Marriage girl three. Oh, we dodged a bullet there, didn't we? I know it really freaked me out. But according to Mr. Reese, our department is absolutely fine. No redundancies. Everything is back on track. To tell you the truth. If I couldn't have had my horses and pink coach, I'd be beside myself. Too grand to be a fairy princess. It's shocking. Girl one, you're so lucky, Bev. Your wedding's going to be fab. But you'll look so cool, won't you? It'll look just gorgeous. A coach and horses. You'll, you'll be just like Cinderella. Girl two, laughing. Yeah, except she doesn't do the cleaning. And I mean any cleaning, washing or cooking. They all laugh uproariously. Marriage girl, no, 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 I don't. Craig knew what he was getting into. I'm very high maintenance, I'll admit that. But he says he loves me and he doesn't care. And all of them went, ah. Then she carried on. 
Mind you, once we're married, he's not getting me into any more of those funny positions he likes. Honestly, I nearly cricked my back again last night. He's on heat all the time. He's like one of those little clockwork jumping dogs. Boing, boing, boing. And his face gets all red and screwed up. And they all laughed screechingly again. Girl too. You wouldn't think it to look at him. Isn't he an accountant? Marriage girl. There's one bit you should see of him. It's like a banana every morning. Again, they all screeched. Girl two. A banana? Girl three. I saw him in the pool last year, Bev. Banana? More like a bunch. And they all broke down in laughter at this. And then after some more slightly graphic description of Fruity Craig, my food arrived. And in the way, though, I do feel sorry for poor old Banana Craig. No more funny positions for you. I used to love writing the overheards. I mean, I used to go home thinking, I cannot believe what I just heard. And I hope today, nor can you. Now, today's writing bit, because this is the bit I like to talk about writing. I'm going to shock you today because I'm going to ask you to write poetry. Now, don't all go, poetry. Poetry isn't what you think. Sometimes it's just the way that you feel. It's thoughts. They don't have to rhyme. It can just be a series of lines like poetry, prose. And sometimes... It's just nice to get our feelings out onto paper. And to give you the exercise, the pointy bit of this, I want you to do a description of an old pet. Now, when I was a kid growing up, we had various pets. And even now, as a grown man, I still think about them and I miss them because they were my friends. They had a kind of powerful effect on me as a child. They were my playmates sometimes when my siblings weren't around or there was nobody around. And to write about them is a beautiful way, I think, of A, writing and B, remembering them and all the love and joy they gave us. So that's your little exercise for today. Anyway, it's really down to that last story. I know it's time for the last story. And this one, it's a true story again. Now, it's called The Health Inspector. Now, I wrote it and it's a fiction story, but it was told to me by a health inspector. And that's where I kind of nicked the idea from. Because believe me, as I keep saying, my imagination's good. But sometimes truth really is stranger than fiction. So this is fiction truth. Dean slowly got out of the car. It was a new electric model supplied by the department. Part of their green drive at the council. The logo and health inspection team stenciled on the side. And pausing just to adjust his shirt collar, he headed out for the first visit of the day. The early bird catching the worm, as he often told his colleagues. Despite the early hour, the high street was now getting busier. Most of the shops open, buses disgorging potential customers every ten minutes. And Dean's first call was the Star of India restaurant. Mr. Carner, a lovely man, a real old school guy, scrupulous. His restaurant was award-winning and Dean had eaten there many times. And more importantly, it had always been regularly fully inspected, always randomly, as per the rules. But every time it won five golden stars, every year, a fact they proudly displayed in their window. The certificate issued by the council and signed by Dean himself as senior manager. He stood outside and peered in through the window. He could see shadowy figures moving around, moving tables, furniture and things. And sharply, he rapped on the glass, now holding up his official ID. And the door very slowly opened. Ah, it was Manish, the son, and Dean smiled. Hi there, Manish. Inspection, you know, can I come in? Manish's face seemed frozen. He'd met Dean a few times before and he knew him. 
But however, for some strange reason, he had an expression of utter confusion. And then Dean prompted him with a grin. Don't worry, Manish, just tell your father I'm here. If he was honest, Dean really liked the old man. A real gent, always a cup of chai prepared by his own hand. And as soon as Dean had completed his work, it was a bit of a formality. But they always had a small lunch together. And Mr Carner ran the place with iron efficiency. Always immensely proud of his restaurant. Snowy tablecloth, silver cutlery, always set to perfection. And the old man's clothing, his suit and shirt, just immaculate. Dean smiled. Manish appeared to be wearing some gold tracksuit. And he stood there, almost as if coming out of a trance. And finally he held the door open and smiled. And Dean stepped past him. He lifted his camera and took a few initial shots for his records. He gets some more detailed ones later. And Manish smiled and said his father wasn't there. In fact, he'd had to go back to India to see his brother. That was disappointing, Dean thought. He'd been looking forward to seeing the old man. He was really lovely, sharp-witted and thoughtful. And he smiled and said, well, not to worry, and handed him a form. There's a good lad. Can you just fill this out for me now? And he indicated the salient points. Look, you see, you signed there and there. But Manish appeared to be in a trance again, staring off into the distance. Dean finally clapped him on the shoulder. Don't worry, your father's done it a hundred times. It's not difficult. I'll help you. Right, let me start now. Suddenly, behind him, he could hear a loud whispering. And Manish was waving to two individuals who suddenly appeared from the kitchen. Dean laughed. He hadn't seen them before. New star, probably. They were always coming and going. And then he shrugged. He understood Manish. Health inspections often caused mild panic, especially in this place, because Mr. Carner was a stickler for doing this right. Probably with the old man away, they were probably worried. He was really fierce. Hard but fair, they said. But standards had to be the best. That was his watchword. Nothing else would do. Dean clapped Manish on the shoulders. Nerves are to be expected, but don't worry. And now he turned and made his way into the kitchen. And as expected, it was almost a textbook place. Clean, well-ordered, every surface gleaming and ready. Surprisingly now empty of staff, probably on a break. And now he took some more shots. He noted a few points on his iPad and headed for the toilets. To be frank, he thought minutes later, these were some of the nicest toilets he'd ever seen. They were very luxurious, gold and marbled, clean as a whistle, and scented with some sort of musky fragrance that reminded him of his dad's aftershave. He paused and took some more pictures, made some other notes on the iPad, and then glanced at his watch. Ah, excellent. At this rate, he'd be out of here in 15 minutes. Foolishly, he'd promised Cathy he'd pick up some flowers for her mother at the new florist by the post office. He loved the restaurant, and he was always impressed. It was the last point of call he had to do now. Just the outside yard, then the small storeroom, then the freezer room. Job done. He glanced down. He had last year's report to guide him. A 10 out of 10 gold star one. Mr. Carner was a martinet as far as the staff were concerned. A very proud man too. His reputation as best restaurant of the year hanging around him with honour. Dean made his way out the back. And as expected, this was cleaner than most people's homes. The paving stones, dust-free, almost spotless, clearly having been washed earlier. Dean had seen Mr. Carner's schedule in the early days. The man had set down an exact set of instructions to the staff, with timings included, never to be missed. 
And he thought, in a way, it was that attention to detail meant that the cluster awards and prizes were now almost a certainty. Such was the old guy's insistence on high standards. Dean looked around. Yep, 10 out of 10. And then he stepped into the freezer room. He lifted each chest freezer lid. Again, almost textbook. The produce laid out, perfectly labelled. He glanced on his iPad at the pictures from last year. Because unusually, one seemed to be nearly completely full to the brim, while the other was almost empty. Yeah, not a very good use of space, but certainly not an infraction, just a carelessness probably. And he thought about Mr. Carner, who'd have really stamped on that one. And he was about to take another picture. And that's when he saw it. A tiny, small red tassel, just lodged by some chicken breasts. Probably fell off some waiter's jacket. And he absentmindedly tucked it back into his pocket. No harm done, really. All the produce was in clear plastic wrappings, marked and labelled and dated as per regulations. He'd mentioned it to Manish afterwards, but he would enter it into the final report. That'd just be unfair, considering everywhere just looks straight out of a textbook. The old man's keen sense of detail strongly in evidence everywhere, despite his absence. He ticked a few boxes on his iPad, remembering Shirley wanted some pink orchids for her mother's birthday. And then he looked at the rest of his schedule. He had the Highbridge Junior School. That was another non-contentious location. But of course, sometimes he did come across some terrible things. There was that rat infestation at the Greek restaurant, the bushmeat in that little shop by the big B&Q. And bushmeat meant actual dead monkeys and lizards. And it was sold to the West African community who saw it as a delicacy. But him and the council rightly saw it as a health hazard. And the owners had been heavily fined and eventually closed down. But he smiled to himself. The Star of India was just not that kind of place. It held no such terrible things because everything was exactly as he'd expected. Clean, stored, perfect. Of course, he had to follow procedures. He'd taken some water samples, swabbed across the top of surfaces. But all in all, he felt very satisfied. Just a bit of final paperwork. Ah, then the flowers, maybe an early lunch. And slowly breathing in, he headed back to the back office area, Mr. Carner's inner sanctum. And as he pushed the door open, there he saw Manish, who was rather stiffly sat in his father's large leather chair, looking rather small, he felt. The golden tracksuit looking rather out of place in the dark panelled room. The walls around him were hung with awards and testimonials, pictures of his father with local celebrities, every picture signed. But Manish seemed agitated as Dean began to read the form. And his hands were shaking. Dean realised he was very worried his father wasn't around. And he said, are you OK, Manish? Look, it's not a problem. Everything is good. You can just relax. And Manish looked at him and he nodded and smiled very shyly. Oh, yes, Mr. Dean, everything is OK. Oh, it's just my father. You know how he is. He has trusted me to run the place. It's very hard. I do my best to be so difficult. Staff coming and going, business getting tighter. And as he spoke, a man came round the door. His eyes streamed with tears. And seeing Dean, he jumped back as if stung, Manish now calling after him. Oh, I'm so sorry, Mr. Dean. Sorry, sorry, Mr. Dean. This poor man recently lost his brother. But um, we are dealing with everything fine. So is there anything else you need me to do? Of course, I'm not wanting to keep you. You're a busy man with many important things to do. And I have some work myself. So if it's time for you to go, I would like to say goodbye and thank you. Dean nodded, and he looked down at the completed form. 
Yep, everything in order, Manish. No problem. Okay, I think I'm finished. Uh, I'll send you a letter next week. Just the formality, really. Oh, oh, please pass my best wishes to your father when he returns. And Manish suddenly leapt up. Oh, oh yes, Mr. Dean, I, 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 I will, I will. And Dean now looked around at the shelves, the rows of books, the golden awards and ornaments. And in one corner, he noticed a rolled up carpet. Hmm, that was unusual for Mr. Carner. Usually always meticulous. Huh. And then he looked again. And he tugged the red tassel he'd found earlier from his pocket and turned to Manish. Oh, sorry, Manish, silly thing, I found this in the freezer. And Manish's face was now a picture of pure shock. And Dean carried on. Um, Manish, it looks like one from that carpet. And he reached out and touched the cloth. It was frozen and icy to the touch. And he suddenly remembered the empty freezer and looked back at the carpet. That was unusual, because it looked like it would have come from maybe the empty freezer. And now he thought to himself, why would you keep a carpet in the freezer? And he looked at Manish's face, which was now a large O of shock. And glancing down, he saw the two brown feet sticking out the bottom, ice across their toes. And slowly he shook his head and tore up his sheet. And Manish stared at him, his eyes now suddenly hopeful. Is that a definite fail then? Well, okay, that's it. It's the end of the podcast. As you know, I'm going to my normal ramble about. Follow us on social media. Go to storyhive.co.uk. Please share this with everybody. I just want to leave you with the fact that as a writer, the biggest joy I think I have is you. You listen to my work and hopefully you enjoy it and it moves you and it makes you feel something. And if I've done that, in a kind of way, all the hours I spend are completely worthwhile. Because I have to tell you, I love being a writer. And I love writing short stories. It's one of my favourite things in the world. Well, it's time for me to push off and have a cup of tea. But before I go, my normal goodbye. And it is a hope the world. And today's one is I hope the world treats you gently today. Bye now. Mm-hmm.